Hello there, friends. I'm Richard Kisnan. We all knew it was coming. Adulthood. Relationships and marriage, business, health, money, bills, fitness. If you're like me, we didn't think that life would come at us like this. I welcome you to join me for raw, authentic, and hopefully really fun conversations about coming into your own as an adult and to help you create a powerful life of your design. This is the Adulthood Revisited Podcast. Hey there, AR Nation. I've got a quick announcement I'd like to share with you. It's about an incredibly powerful, high-ticket marketing community that I'm a proud member of. It's called the Super Affiliate Accelerator. This program's absolutely for you if you want to be successful online. Whether you're a beginner looking to get started with an online business, and also if you already have an online business but struggling to reach your goals. The Super Affiliate Accelerator is run by three experienced and amazing coaches. Between the three of them, they've sold millions of dollars in products and services online across all different industries. Why I find the Super Affiliate Accelerator so powerful is because of its unique all-in-one blend of a proven training program, weekly coaching and mentoring from an amazing group of accomplished internet marketers, and a private mastermind community of like-minded and supportive business owners and professionals. For a limited time, the SAA coaches are offering a complimentary business strategy call. So whether you're a coach or consultant, if you provide professional services, or if you just want to start an online business, but you're confused or overwhelmed with where or how to start, I invite you to check out this incredible program, the Super Affiliate Accelerator. And you can learn more today by visiting richardkistnan.com forward slash SAA. Again, that's richardkistnan.com forward slash SAA. Now, let's get to today's amazing episode. Hello there, Aero Nation. Welcome back to the Adulthood Revisited Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Kiston. So glad to be with you. So glad that you're spending your time and energy with me wherever in the world you are doing whatever it is you're doing. Hope you're doing well. Uh, right now, so we're in the throngs late, late August, which is those dog days. And literally, if I could send you a pic of my dog, he's, he's given up on a lot of things, including life. Uh, doesn't want to move. It's one of those like 90 degrees, 90 degrees, humid. Um, and I think only compounded by the fact, at least at the time of this recording, with a lot of the social discourse going on around race, uh, the treatment of law enforcement towards black people. Um, but I'm super excited because I have a great personal friend here uh, on the show today as a guest. And we're going to dive into all things related to teaching COVID, and as well as the important conversations that parents and teachers are having with their children, with their students. So I'm really excited to introduce, again, great friend of mine, Caitlin Davis. Caitlin, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited. So just, uh, just in case, Caitlin's a, a, a public school teacher in, here in Brooklyn. Um, and so I'm just going to open the floor. Caitlin, I'll give you the space if you want to say a little bit about yourself who you are, what you do, and then maybe a little about the journey towards becoming uh, a teacher. Sure. So um, as Richard said, I'm a third grade teacher. I teach ENL, which is teaching English to students who speak another language. I've taught in the same public school for 11 years now, um, and I've been in that same community all 11 years. So Throughout my 11 years there, I've formed a lot of relationships with students, the community, the families there, and I really love what I do. If I could take, let's, let's jump back because I feel like 
as a kid, maybe there, I'm always curious about when and where the idea to become what you find yourself doing today became like a thing. So it, take us back to maybe when you thought, maybe when you were a kid, if you ever thought yourself of doing something or as doing something particular work-wise, but then when did, when and how did you realize that you, you become a teacher? Um, not until much later. I think most people as their kids, they know what they kind of want to do, but I never really had anything in particular that was calling me. Um, I always loved school. I did well in school. I had an interest in languages, learning language, reading, writing, but I never really knew how I could apply that and make that a career. So I went through college, graduated, um, still kind of didn't really know what I wanted to do. <laughs> Um, but I knew I wanted to do something to help the community, but how I didn't know. Um, when I was in college, I did have an opportunity to do uh, work at a law firm at the law school. So I did like intern work there, translating between student lawyers and clients. And I, I liked the work, but I knew that law, I entertained it for a bit, but knew that it wasn't for me. But I liked that aspect of working in, in the community helping people in need. And um, I kind of just fell into a teaching program. I said, why not? This sounds like it's kind of, uh, you know, in the same vein as something I want to do. And from there, here I am. Let me ask about that because, you know, at least conversations that I've had with people who are, um, you know, it, the idea to become a teacher, especially here in New York, there's always this like, like do I want to teach public school versus looking for a private school and because of the differences in funding, support and whatnot. Um, you've been a public school teacher the, the entire 11 years, correct? Yes. And have you ever, did it ever cross your mind that maybe public school isn't what you wanted or what was, what was the thought process behind if there was any, I mean, it could, it could have been random as well, but if, was there any thinking behind public school versus some other setting? Um, so my, my master's degree is in teaching English to students of other languages and the majority of communities that need, um, that are immigrant communities that need ENL teachers. So that at first, when I first started, I didn't really know much about it. I just was searching and most of the schools that were hiring were, public schools because that was the need. But now that I've taught in public schools for over a decade, I wouldn't, wouldn't teach in any other kind of school. What do you, th I mean, about the work that you do in, in teaching, helping students that, you know, predominantly other languages, is it lots, is it just, is it Spanish or is it, uh, you know, your classroom is filled with students that speak their the primary languages other languages um so the school as a whole has about 60 percent of students that come in speaking no english um majority are spanish speakers from different countries in central and south america and the caribbean but we also do have a chinese population and arabic speaking population as well in, in when you, when you start the school year off like or let's, let's, let's go back actually. Cause I mean, now you're a veteran, right? You, you like <laughs> know the role, you know, like how to navigate probably I'm, I'm sure it was every school year there are new issues or issues that like have a different face. 
but take us through the early years when you first started like what were do you remember some of the challenges that that you had to deal with and trying to figure out like did you ever cross your mind what am i doing did i did i make a mistake what was that like yeah, all the time <laughs> um there are so many things that you need to learn by just doing and watching people who have done it before you um how to handle these situations that you never think you're going to find yourself in it can be getting a new student that you didn't know was showing up that day who just got here from China and they, they're dropped off in your class and you have to make them feel welcome. Or, um, you know, forming relationships with families and you don't share a language. You have to communicate through a translator. Um, but you know you need to form a relationship because that's going to benefit the child in the end. Um, those are things, those soft skills how to make people feel welcome when you might not come from the same culture or how to form a relationship with someone whose language you don't speak and they don't speak yours is something that you, I can, I keep learning how to do that better and better, I would say, but in the beginning, it's definitely tough. In the kind of classroom that you, you teach and you, you control, um, how, what do you find, do you find the way curriculums are designed, or at least the curriculum that you have to you have to implement, hurts or helps students? I know it's a weird question, but like I think in some conversation I've had with people, generally speaking, like you wonder if the the theory behind like having students who are should they be in general population, or should you segregate them out into classrooms where you know, English isn't their native language or whatnot. So mm -hmm. do you, do you, maybe it's like somewhere in between or so, but what do you feel the strengths or this kind of classroom or setup does, do you think that it does more for students with the problems that present or it sort of keeps them back? Well, I can only speak to what my school does. Um, they're very big on integrating ESL students and students with special needs in with general education students. And I see that as a positive thing because it, it teaches everyone who's involved. And I think that when you pigeonhole kids into specific groups, they begin to identify themselves as I am this, I am that. So I think by making sure classes are diverse and have all different kinds of students, whether it be language level, um, disability, intellectual level, I think exposure to different kinds of students is a positive thing. Let me, I want to turn out to, I, I, like for me, when I, when I think about, I'm not a teacher, right? But when I think about like me going through public school and the challenges that I saw, like friends of mine, I, I was fortunate enough that even though I'm a first generation American, like I always had a roof to go to my parents where I was like, all you got to do is focus on school. You know, lots of students don't have that. Lots of students don't have that support. What do you find is like, how do you navigate the challenges with when, especially these, I, I would assume predominantly immigrant families have their mm -hmm. students to school that may not have the traditional idea of what like a support structure at home is like, how do you as a teacher figure out how do you how to help these students as much as possible when they don't have what you would think a traditional student should have at home? So I think the first step is first you need to 
form a relationship and figure out where you can help figure out where, um, you know, where a family is and then how can you bridge that gap? I think that you also need to let go of your preconceived notions about what parents should do, how, how you should be doing work at home, you know, what discipline should be like at home because you're, I'm their teacher, I'm not their parent. And you need to meet families and students where they are because th and that's my job. My job isn't to tell, you know, families, you should be doing this, you should be doing that. Um, but one thing that I think if you do form a strong relationship with them, you can actually have conversations that you can learn from each other and then make steps forward in ways that can help the child. Do you have, this is going to be a two part question, but the first part is going to set up the second part. Okay. Are there, are there elements of what you do that like, or put another way, like what, what happens in your day to like bring you down? Like maybe I'll call it a failure event or is there, is, are there things that occur at work that make you like wonder what am I doing with my life or where you feel like you just, you're not making the most of your time on earth? <laughs> I think teaching is the kind of profession where you, you definitely have those moments where you feel like this was a disaster, you know, this lesson was terrible, or I put in all this work and there's a fire drill, or, you know, this parent has a problem with me and now I have to put out this fire. But the next day, it's something about working with kids. It's like it's a fresh start. And you can have, you know, kids will get in an argument one day or you can't get any, you feel like you can't get anything done. And then the next day it's like, okay, I can start over again and we're going to try again and do better. Which, which leads into my, the second part of it. What do you have, if you were to say like, you're talking to someone who's interested in teaching and they ask the same question, like what's, uh, what, what kind of occurrences make you feel really bad and question being a teacher. But on the other hand, what this question is like, do you have any, any moments or memories you can share that say, man, this is why I, I really enjoy and thrive in being a teacher. Um, I mean, just the, the, the laughs that you can have with a group of 30 kids every day is like it, they bring a smile to your face, whether they mean to or not. Um, and even just seeing kids who are struggling or um, having a hard time, you're with them throughout almost a year, seeing the progress that they make throughout a year, checking in on them two years later and to see that they've come a long way, that makes you feel good. You have some kids that come in refusing to speak. They don't, they, won't speak to you, they don't know any English, they're shy, and then you see that over the course of the year, they start talking to friends, they'll start talking to you, they start feeling comfortable, especially if they're new to the country. Like that makes me feel really good to have a kid who doesn't wanna be there at all, <laughs> the last place they wanna be, to not wanting to leave at the end of the year. Can you speak a little bit to the role of what, what you feel about technology in the classroom. And I bring this up because one, I didn't want growing up, obviously I didn't have like very many computers or anything. Like we had computer class, fortunately, but that was the extent of it. And I actually didn't get, my family didn't get our first computer until like, 
I was in junior high school, high school. I don't remember what it was. Um, but how do you, do you think like the increased presence of technology, whether it's smartphone, tablets, whatever it is, um, sort of creates obstacles or opportunities, or it's like a, a nice blend of both? Um, I think the kids that I teach are fairly young. They're eight years old. So I'm sure high school teachers would say something very different because all their kids probably have a, a cell phone on them during class. But the students I teach are young enough where they mostly don't have their own device. So when we use tablets or laptops in class, usually it's just another way to show their learning. So, you know, if you can create something using technology to do a presentation or, you know, show that you understand what I've taught you, I think it's a benefit and teachers need to leverage it, especially now. For, for any parent that may be listening to this, what would you recommend to the extent that they can, right? Because obviously people have different resources, different time and whatnot. But what would you recommend is like the, the most critical thing that a parent can do with and for their child to help support them as, as they're like going through school, especially these formative years, third grade and whatnot? I would say talk to your kid. Doesn't matter what it's about. Have conversations that show them that you are engaged and interested in what they're doing. Um, let them know that you are a place they can go to for if they have questions or things that are on their mind. Um, not all parents share that the language that children are learning in. Not all parents, like you said, have the resources or the time to take their kid to a museum, take their kid to the library. But if I could say one thing, it's talk to your kid. Where do you, I, I'm gonna ask this question. It's a little weird, but I thought about it. I, I was always, and I was raised like, go to school, go to school, go to school. And I thought for a long time for myself, if and when I have a family, I would say the same thing to my kids, go to school, go to school, go to school. I think there's value in education, but like I've, I've come to re-examine the value of like formal education. Mm -hmm. Where do you see education, whether it's whole or maybe if you, if you want to think about it, like in your context, public school, where do you see that going in the next, I don't know, 10 or 20 years? I mean, that's a hard question to answer. I don't even know what the next year brings for us at this point. So, <laughs> You know, you always just try, we're in August. This is like the time of year where I'm usually getting excited, starting to plan, starting to go into the building and set things up and think about how I want to improve things that, you know, were on my mind from last year. And I feel with the way um, COVID is and the return to school is so uncertain, I'm, I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's hard. It's a hard question to answer. I think... I think that the pandemic will definitely alter the way that we educate kids and what it means to get an education. Along that same vein, I want to dive into a little now and probably more discreetly if you're living in New York City, because I honestly have no idea what the plan is with New York City public schools, right? It seems like every day there's some some swing of the pendulum one way or another. As a teacher, 
how does this, like, how do you react to this with every day? You, you don't know exactly what the plan is and it's coming pretty close to the beginning of the traditional school year. Like without get, uh, setting aside like politics or whatnot, like how, how do you feel that you can competently do your job moving forward? Let's say this coming school year with the uncertainty around how schools can operate. I think, you know, I, I don't have a choice in the matter. I'm going to do the best I can. And if that means figuring out it out as I go along, unfortunately, it'll be what it is. But teachers are very resourceful and we will figure it out and do the best we can with the situation that we are given. Do you think, because there's been, I think COVID has kind of forced schools, companies like everyone to really embrace you know, moving things on everything online and dealing virtually. Do you, do you feel like you get the same connection? Well, not just personal connection because I, I actually look, I'm, I'm going ahead of myself here because I, I just assumed for you that the face-to-face -face connection, you can't replace that. But no. some people feel like you can get, you can approach that. Do you think that the learning environment moved online, moved remotely, can be a, a, like a competent substitute for in-person learning? I don't think so. I think it can be a supplement. I don't think that children going through kindergarten through fifth grade are going to learn other skills they need to learn by being in front of a screen all day. They need to learn how to interact with their peers. They need to learn how to debate in a respectful way. They need to learn how to listen to others and be able to challenge them. Um, defending their own idea, like it can be done, but that kind of thing is so much more powerful in person. A lot of, um, you know, project-based learning, you can do it online, but it's so much more powerful, I think, if you're working together in a team, you can be within six feet of each other. There's like a level of creativity and, um, learning that happens there that it, it might happen online and you might see little sparks of it, but I don't think it's a, re a replacement for in-person instruction. Do you see yourself being a public school teacher for the next 20 or 30 years? Or have you ever thought about how can I evolve, whether it's what I do, how I do, or somewhere else? Um, right now I'm, I'm very happy doing what I do. I love what I do. So I think for the time, for the near future, I see myself continuing on this path. Um, but you never know, keep my options open. <laughs> um, turning now to, to sort of more immediate events, like what we've experienced this, I don't want to say that this summer or this year has been unlike any other, because I feel like each year and each summer, like is its own thing. And we deal with our own ups and downs. For me personally, I feel like 2020 has just been outlandishly challenging. Um, and not just because of the COVID pandemic, but we've seen like this, not even discussion, but action and movement in civil rights, particularly about race relations and black people in the United States, um, particularly the treatment by law enforcement. Have you 
given any thought to how that's going to influence or show up in your classroom the coming school year? Definitely. Um, it actually, a group of teachers at my school expressed the need for this last year. Um, how even before the murder of George Floyd, how our curriculum needs to represent and reflect the students we're teaching. Um, it needs to be representative of the communities we teach in. So that was kind of like step one that we were a goal our school was moving towards. And I mean, the other thing is um, after George Floyd, it's so easy to say, well, you know what, I have to teach math today and I have to teach reading today and I just got to move on. And that you can't do that because as much as you want to think other oh, kids, they don't, they don't know what's going on. They're in a bubble. They're oblivious. They're not, um, you know, their families talk about it. They see it in their communities. They, they see it on TV and they have feelings about it and they have questions and they want to talk about it. So I think it's our responsibility as educators to give them a place to have these conversations, be honest with them, um, acknowledge that there are many perspectives and yeah, just continue to provide them with facts, provide them with as much information that we can and then allow them the space to express their opinions, feelings, and promote conversations around this. Do you think that it's, it's your role as a responsibility as a teacher to do that or that only because you're, you're like, you're towing the line with families, right? And different right. families have different attitudes and perspective towards anything and everything that's going on in the world. Like, how do you feel, how do you, you personally feel like it's the right way to navigate that without, you know, I don't want to say causing conflict or creating tension, mm -hmm. but um, do you think it's your responsibility to get involved in that? And to the extent that it is, like, how do you manage the expectations or perspectives of your students' families or so? Um, well, I think if before we were last year, a bunch of my colleagues and I were kind of grappling with the same question, like, what's the right way to approach this? How much do kids know? Um, is it my responsibility to impose my opinion and my feelings on a bunch of eight-year-olds? And, you know, before we could even figure out the right way to do this, one of the kids was like, let's talk about what I'm seeing on the news. George Floyd was murdered. Let's talk about it. So you can't just say, oh, we're not going to talk about that right now. That's not right. You need to honor, if they want to have the conversation, you need to be able to facilitate, facilitate that and allow them to say, say what they want to say. You can, you know, provide them with some guidance, some questions, but I don't, I don't think it's my role to shut that down. And it's not easy. I'm not saying it's easy. Yeah, I, I guess I was going to ask you that. <laughs> like, how uncomfortable is that? And I, 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 as a lawyer, I think I have it some, I have it easy. I mean, the worst, the worst that I have sometimes are, are clients that call me like crying about an eviction or something, right? That they, they need to get this tenant out or you know, the, the cha financial challenges that have led them to think about bankruptcy. 
And while I, I think to myself, I'm not equipped to handle that, but like, it's not dealing with children and, and what can come of it. Like, how, how uncomfortable is it? Or maybe it's not uncomfortable, but how do you feel on a scale of uncomfortability is it to have these conversations with eight-year-olds? I think it starts with um, the support of your colleagues. I mean, you're not going to go into a situation by yourself and navigate this perfectly and say everything you're supposed to say um, and not upset parents or, you know, not maybe not impose your own thinking. You're not going to be perfect. But I think if you have, you work with people who also believe this work is important and you're able to support each other and give each other guidance, I felt that was very helpful. Like to reach out to my colleagues and say, hey, my kids brought this up today. What, do, what would you do? What, did, what have you done in the past? Having that network of support is, oh, is helpful in teaching regardless of you know, what you're trying to get across. What, turning, I, let, I want to shift gears a little bit and ask you, looking back on, on your career, right? Or maybe projecting ahead, looking backwards. And I ask this because I'm actually still connected with some teachers. I, I, I'll never, I don't think I'll ever forget this, but when I was recovering from surgery, my fourth and fifth grade teacher came to visit me. What kind of relationship would you like want to have with your students down the line? Like when you look back, do you want to say, still be connected with your students or um, how does that look like for you? I definitely want to stay connected with the students I've, I've taught. I think having like staying in the same community for so long, you get to know families, you know, who's related to who, you know, cousins, you know, siblings, um, parents. So you can always ask, Oh, how's so-and-so doing? You know, I had them in my class 10 years ago, and now I have their little cousin in my class. So because it is such a tight-knit community, and, you know, the longer you're there, the more relationships you're able to build. And, and they, they do the same to you. They'll come and check in and see how things are and ask questions and, uh, you know, send hellos to other relatives. And I, that's one of my favorite parts. I'll be in the subway, and someone will approach me and start talking with me and say, you talk my son 10 years ago and you have my niece now and i find that it's really nice to have that connection <laughs> so i don't know if i ever shared this with you but between my myself my younger brother and my sister we we all went to the same high school and from the my first year to my sister's last year it was 10 years so it was like a decade yeah. of the kitchen household <laughs> at the high school for health professions dynasty <laughs> um, in terms of public school teaching and I think something that always comes up maybe even around now like election time is the like financing of education and public school education particularly um, it seems like it's it's the same story year after year election cycle after election cycle that like teachers have to come out of pocket so much for their classrooms yeah why, why do you I mean, have you ever thought about like why education is so, maybe even public school education remains so poorly funded? I don't know why it's so poorly funded. Um, 
I know, I mean, like you said, we do go into our own pockets to purchase a lot of the things that we want for our students. Um, I don't know, you'll have to ask the politicians about that, <laughs> people who do the budget. If, let me, I mean. I mean, I know there's a difference in how, for example, New York City Public School is funded versus suburban communities. I know there are differences there, um, but I guess the answer is ever, there's, there are other issues that also are fighting for that money. That's, that's the simple answer. But I, I don't think I know the, <laughs> I can't answer that question. Like, let's, say, let's say somehow, some way your class, like the budgets for a classroom, your classroom bumped up. Like, do you think money would solve problems? And yeah. what, what, like, what problems would those, would those, <laughs> would those be? Um, the first thing I think of is overcrowding. If you have more money, you can hire more teachers and have smaller class sizes, which are proven to be better for students. You get more um, attention, one-on-one -on -one attention from your teacher. Like right now, my, I've had classes that have 34 children in it. It's a lot of kids. Um, private schools, you probably don't see classes with that many kids in it. They're probably more like in the teens or low 20s. Um, yeah, access to books, um, access to high interest books that kids want to read. Um, I think that's huge. Access to technology, access to different programs and um, residencies that cert certain schools have. I mean, we've been lucky enough to have like a chess residency, an art res residency, um, but that comes from other funding. So all of the, all of the fun stuff comes from funding. <laughs> I still, like my saving grace in public school is learning the recorder. Yeah. <laughs> um, what, maybe share a little about outside of teaching, like what, how do you stay sane or stay composed, stay collected outside of school? Or do you find yourself like work comes home and all year round, like you're figuring out how to remain connected with your students and how, and especially right now with COVID and the, and certainly uncertainty with school, like how much separation do you have between teacher Davis and Caitlin Davis, the person? Um, I feel like I do a pretty good job of managing that. Um, I have a very long train ride, so I've become very efficient on those one hour there and one hour back. I'm able to get a lot of work done, but I think the wheels are always turning. Even if I say, okay, I'm gonna do something for me, I'm not gonna do anything regarding work, I feel like the wheels are always turning about ways that I can make something better or something I wanna try or you know, a way to innovate. For, for anyone who, I think I'm getting to the age where there's a lot of discussion about like having children and parenting and even, even people who are older than me who already have kids, like they're, they're always looking at schools and maybe the, the discussion of private school versus pri uh, private versus public and all that kind of stuff. If, as someone who teaches in public school, right, I, I, I again, I, I may be making a huge assumption, but would you, what would you tell those parents who are, I would say, reluctant 
to put their children in public school because of what I, I like call them preconceived notions of what public school is like. I would say go visit your local school and see what they're about. See how the teachers interact with students, see how the students interact with each other, see how the faculty interacts with each other. Because that's what your, your child is going to learn from what they see. So if you like the way that the, the members of that community are treating each other and interact with each other, it's probably a good place to put your kid. If you could design an ideal classroom, classroom size, technology, the, what, what, would that, what would that look like? I, this is something I never thought to ask any of my teachers. But now, and like in having this conversation and think about it, like what would an ideal classroom look and feel like? Number one, it would have windows because my classroom right now doesn't have windows. So that's first and foremost, fresh air, sunlight. Um, there would be enough space for kids to move around, um, do group work comfortably, a lot of access to books, all different genres, all different topics, all different interests. Um, definitely access to technology. And I think access to the things that make kids kids, whether it be games, chat, like chess instruction, um, a gym that they can actually run around in, not having a teacher come and do gym in the classroom, an art room where they can go and be creative, not sitting at their desk doing art or having a dance room where they can dance instead of standing next to their seat and doing dance there. So I think it's not necessarily the classroom, but what do they have access to as an extension of that classroom? For, for anyone who's, let's say you were, you were giving a career talk and for anyone who's, contemplating and thinking about becoming a teacher what would you tell them about teaching and and like go into it if and only if like what's what would be your career advice for somebody who's thinking about becoming a teacher don't go into it thinking you're going to save the world i think it's very idealistic and people who start sometimes think I'm gonna go and I'm gonna fix all the problems that exist. And that's not realistic and can actually be harmful. You, your job is to be part of a community, to form relationships, to do your best, to give the children of this community the best education that you possibly can. And accept that life is not perfect and most of the kids that you teach will be, will have struggles along the way. And you are not a savior that can go in and magically fix this, but you are there to guide and support and do whatever you can for those families and those students. I, I forget the name of the book, but it, I, it was some, do you think every, every child is teachable? Yes. I think every child is teachable in, in, a, in a way. It might not be your way. I think if you, you have that black and white view of, well, this child is teachable and this one is not, maybe you are not teaching in a way that is understandable <laughs> or 
Um, you know, not everyone learns the same, but, and there are different levels. Maybe what you view as successful for one kid is not, you're not going to have that same expectation for another, but there's always room for progress. Sort of pulling, pulling that thread for you, what, what constitutes success? Whether it's on a daily basis for the school year, like what do you feel this was a successful and you can fill in the, the blank as the time timeline. So I, this is, is, this can be very varied. I don't use just one piece of data to say this year is a success. It could be a student comes into my classroom and they are a selective mute. They don't speak. And by the end of, I've had this a few years ago, by the end of the year, his mom came to me saying, you don't understand, like he would not speak in the beginning of the year. And after nine months in this class, he has friends now. He, he talks to people now. He's not afraid to raise his hand and participate. So that, that's an example of success. It can be, you know, a family that lives in a shelter who you work with and get them the support they need to move into a, an apartment. It could be, um, it could be something as, you know, data driven as they did well on a test that you wanted them to, or, you know, uh, acquired a certain skill that you've been working on with them. But I think there's all different levels and it really depends on like, where did you start from? Cause there are a lot of different measures of success that are not shown on like a pie chart. What do you think? Again, this is just something that just, just popped into my head. What do you think a student who starts the year, like what's, have you ever asked a student, like what, what would be success to you? Or what do you think that is? I think success is they're learning, but they are having so much fun. They don't realize they are. Like if they're having fun all day and you know that you're teaching them what you need to, that's successful. Yeah. Cause it doesn't feel like, uh, not another six hours of this. It's, I want to go to school and have fun and learn in the process. Very awesome. Caitlin, I, I really appreciate the insight. Like I, I, I think I've had maybe, I don't want to call them surface level conversations, but like, I don't know the ins and outs of like teaching and all, like all the different people that you're, you're having to navigate students, families, administration, coworkers, your own personal life. Like there's a lot that you're navigating and a lot of responsibility that I think is built in, just thrown on teachers. And it's, you know, a hugely underappreciated, undervalued and under-recognized like industry and, and, and career. So like, I want to thank you for taking the time out to share not only thoughts on your teaching, like what's you're looking uh, ahead towards in the school year, but also discussing the challenges of COVID and navigating that, that uncertainty. And also particularly right now with what's going on, discussing race in America, being black or brown or a minority in America with law enforcement. So I really appreciate that. Thanks for having me, Rich. Anytime. Um, I, as just to start wrapping up, I'm actually going to, if, if you'd like, if you have any parting words, I'd love to give the floor to you to share with anyone out there who may be um, anyone who's maybe a good connection or just again, any message that you want to leave to the AR nation listeners. Um, don't overlook the contributions of immigrant communities in our city. 
they do more than we think and we need to support them and support their children and some more, uh, support communities that aren't granted the same privileges that other ones take for granted. It's not, it's not a black and white issue and every pocket of the city is different. And the more we learn about that, I think the more understanding we'll have. Very awesome. Well, again, Caitlin Davis, thank you so much. Public school teacher extraordinaire here in Brooklyn. Caitlin Davis, again, I really thank you and appreciate you for all your time, energy, and jumping on the AR podcast. Thanks, Reg. And ladies and gentlemen, Internation, thank you so much for being here. Until next time, take care. Be well. Bye for now. Hey there, AR Nation. Before we go, I wanted to remind you of the Super Affiliate Accelerator. Whether you're looking to get started with an online business or if you're struggling to see the traction you've been hoping for in your current online business, the Super Affiliate Accelerator can help you see the success that you want in your business and in your life. The Super Affiliate Accelerator is an all-in-one, high-ticket marketing community where you'll get access to proven training, weekly coaching and mentoring from seasoned and accomplished marketers who've sold millions of dollars in products and services online as well as access to a private mastermind community of like-minded and supportive business owners and professionals. Right now, the SAA coaches are offering a free complimentary business strategy call. So if you're ready to build a strong and profitable online business and brand, take advantage of the complimentary business strategy call today and learn more about the Super Affiliate Accelerator by visiting richardkiston.com forward slash SAA.